Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. This interview was conducted as a KPFA event on Zoom on June 8, 2021, and has been edited for audio. The full 80-minute video can be found by going to the webpage for this podcast at kpfa.org. My guest is Mick LaSalle. Mick is the author of Dream State, California and the Movies, which was published by Heyday Books. He's the author of three earlier books, Complicated Women, Sex and Power in Pre-Code Hollywood, Dangerous Men, Pre-Code Hollywood and the Birth of the Modern Man. And I previously interviewed Mick for both books on my Bookwaves radio show. And he's also the author of The Beauty of the Real, What Hollywood Can Learn from Contemporary French Actresses. Mick is probably better known as the longtime film critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, where he continues to review films on a regular basis for their date book section, and every so often has an Ask Mick column. And the last one I read, You Trashed the Golden Globes, which was always fun to read about. Uh, when did you first start at the Chronicle? Well, my first published article was September 18th, 1985. And then I was hired at the Chronicle September 23rd, 1985. From personal perspective, uh, mixed two books on pre-code Hollywood films opened a door for me to an entire array of films that I otherwise would never have noticed. Um, it's still a shock sometimes to see the difference between films made in the first part of 1934 before the production code took effect and the second half of that year after the code began. And if you don't know what the code was or how films changed, I think that's probably where I'm going to start the interview before moving on to dream state. About the code and the pre-code, why should we seek these old talkies out from 27 to 34 and what do you think they tell us about today as well as about the history of movies and of censorship in America? Why you would watch them is to enjoy them. I mean, because you can't you almost there's almost nothing you can persuade anybody to do without fun being part of the motive to it. And I would say that these these movies are really enjoyable. But the thing that, that's enjoyable about them is that you're watching an era express itself without a filter. The only filter that, that there is, the only thing that is, that is inhibiting the filmmakers is just what they think the public wants to see. And so they're not gonna show you anything the public doesn't wanna see. But because they're showing you things that they expect the public wants to see and that the public would agree with, you're hearing therefore the voice of the consensus, you're hearing an era speak with its true voice. And this is an era that's a long time ago now, it's 85, 86, 87, 88 years ago. And so you're seeing this era from very long ago speaking to you with a true voice about what it's like to be human. The kick of this is kind of like uh, if you read a poem from 500 years ago and the poet is going through exactly what you're going through. And then you feel that connection across time. 
But the difference with movies is that you actually see the people. And that's fascinating. So now as for what these movies say about censorship, I mean, in a way, it says that it can come at any time and it can come in different forms. You know, the, the form that it came in the 1930s was from the right, from Catholics, lay Catholics mainly, but some Catholic clergy. And it came from, you know, culturally conservative. But I, I would not, you know, I think that, that the left is immune from a desire to silence voices or to put you know, forth only visions that, you know, and ideas that it wants to see too. I think throughout American history, maybe 50% of the public at any given time actually believes in the First Amendment, you know, really genuinely believes in the First Amendment. And so I think that the, the true expression in the arts is kind of a fragile thing. And what it tells us about our time, maybe nothing, maybe something. I mean, I guess it tells you this, if you're seeing connections across time, a lot of connections. You know, 90 years is not, you know, 2000 years in Western culture or something, but 90 years is a long time. And if you're making those connections, you might be able to extrapolate from that the aspects of our current life that are, if not permanent, at least pretty consistent aspects of human nature that are consistent. And then other aspects of human nature that are fads, that are just fads, not only of thought, but of behavior. Things that, you know, that they, people talk a certain way and act a certain way just because they happen to be born at a certain period of time. So I think that it, it, when you watch something from 90 years ago that, that's really good and that's immediate, or that it's at least really interesting and vivid, you can feel what it is about your time that is going to last and maybe get an inkling into what is really impermanent and not terribly important. Well, what happened in 1934 was that they instituted the code. And, you know, when we talk about a book like Dream State, we're mostly talking about either current movies or that period in the code, during the code. And things were very unreal then. You had ethnic people, not, not all, I mean, it was still racist, but you had Jews, you had Italians, and of course, people had actions like extramarital sex, and they didn't necessarily suffer as they did during the code era. But that brings us back to dream state, because in some respects, we're talking about Hollywood. And Hollywood is California. And California likes to talk about itself, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way the book is, you know, I knew I couldn't do a book about like the history of California in the movies, because that's like the history of movies, you know. I can do something about every time California is in a movie, depicted in a movie, because that would be, you know, the history of movies too. So what I did with this book is this is this is a book about California ideas that have, that have made its way into the culture of the rest of the country. And then it's about uh, the idea of California as manifested through the movies and then I guess made its way into the culture. So it tries to look at California from a number of different angles as, as it's portrayed in, on screen with the hope of, you know, maybe something, some, in the observation of these tendencies, it's, it's some of it's useful and interesting. A book like this is hard to write because it's, it's hard psychologically to write. I found, I found it I, because it's a book of ideas and every time I started the chapter, I didn't know if I was going to get any, you know, and when I started the book, I didn't know if I was going to get any. 
it's not enough to get some. I mean, you have to get through the whole book. So if like, you know, if I get 5,000 words worth of ideas, that's an article. And if I get 60,000 worth words worth of ideas, I have a book. But if I get 25 or 30, I, I have nothing, you know, I have nothing. And so the whole process of writing this book was trying to, worrying that I just had, you know, just run out of gas at the end of every chapter. Because it seemed to me more like a book length essay than say, you know, what we'd normally have in a book. And that's a very, very long essay. When you sat down to write it, I mean, what were you thinking? I mean, you start a little bit with the notion of the Wizard of Oz film almost as a template for what you're going to be talking about. The nice thing about this book is that it was easy to structure because it doesn't tell a linear story. So that every time I finished a chapter, it was done and I didn't have to rearrange it or take this part of this chapter and turn it into that. So instead of being like one essay, I mean, it's like 11 essays with an intro and an epilogue. And any of those essays, you can arrange the way you want. I, I have reasons for the way I arranged it the way I did, but it's not in the order in which I wrote it. The way I wrote the book was that I had a false start of about five months where I did everything wrong. I mean, at first I wrote the two chapters. I wrote the chapter on fame and the chapter on film noir. And then on that basis, we decided to proceed with the book, publisher, and also I decided. I said, okay, I could, I could write it. And then I wasted about five months because I started watching a bunch of movies. And I didn't realize that I had seen enough movies. You know, I mean, I've seen, you know, every probably not every movie of the last 35 years, but I've seen a lot of movies in the last 35 years, you know, doing what I'm doing with the Chronicle. And then I'd seen a lot of movies to begin with. So what I started instead thinking of topics, and then I would assign movies to the topics. And that's what I started, so I started just thinking like, what are the ideas? And, and then free writing around those ideas and, and realizing what ideas I had within those ideas. So that's how I wrote the book. Yeah, I'd say, you know, youth or, you know, glory of youth, things that I've noticed, Obviously, Utopias with California, disaster movies with California. Talk a little bit about uh, the, the treatment of Asians in cinema with a little bit of uh, American cinema, which I th find a very interesting subject. That section was very important and very timely, but it was not really as California-based as the rest of the book. In a way, yeah, because it's it's because some of it is dealing with Pearl Harbor, right? So. The, the treatment of Asians in American cinema is just interesting because the treatment of African-Americans in American cinema is just like all bad. It's just like, there's just like nothing good to be said for it. I mean, up until Sidney Poitier or something, it's like, it's like a wasteland. It really is. I mean, Sidney Poitier was the first African-American person to win an Academy Award for not playing a slave. I mean, so it gives you an idea <laughs> of how bad it was, right? The treatment of Asians in American cinema is like a mixed bag. I mean, it's, it, it's it's kind of bad, but it's there's like good things in it, and 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 there are opportunities, you know, there's like great frustrated careers like Anime Wong, right? Everybody loved Anime Wong. She's great. She's beautiful. You know, she had a really good career, except that because she was Asian, and there were no Asian male stars in American film, she couldn't kiss anybody. I mean, this is like insane, right? So she couldn't kiss anybody because if she was kissing a white actor, then it would be interracial. If he's bad enough, but they did a lot of that in those days, it's still a white actor. I mean, it was just so she she would be stuck in movies like Daughter of the Dragon, where she's like Fu Manchu's daughter. And she starts killing people, you know, bad. You know, her, you know, it was frustrating. At the same time, there's a lot of 
you know, admiration. You see movies like, you know, all these movies that cater the stereotypes. So they're stereotypical and therefore not good. But at the same time, the stereotypes are not necessarily horrible. Like Step and Fetch It is like just plain horrible. But like Charlie Chan is not entirely horrible, even though it's played by a white guy. It's mixed. It's not good, but it's not like, anyway, so I, I was just interested in that. And in, in a way, it's something I, I couldn't write a book about. This is something for, for an Asian film scholar, right? But at the same time, I think that I'm able to notice things just as a, as a white person looking at it too. And, and what I notice is that despite the kind of reversion, almost like a culturally indoctrinated or mandated reversion to racism or at least condescension, you also see like a steady element of interest and attraction and admiration. Like you get a film like uh, Son of the Gods, you know, which is really about how all the white people are horrible. And, and Richard Barthelmess is this Chinese guy, Chinese immigrant. He, he falls in love with this woman, this white woman. And then, he, and then she finds out she's Chinese and she goes crazy and gets mad at him. And then she comes to him and says... I don't care if you're Chinese, you know, I just want to be with you. Let's get married. And then he springs the good news on her. And this is what you mean. This is like, it only gets so good, right? Then it stops. Well, he finds out he's not really Chinese. You know, he was left at the doorstep of this Asian family. So, you know, they blow it always at the end. But throughout that movie, you see there's a real respect and an admiration for Asian cultures and things like that. I, I think it's endlessly fascinating. And, and I think that stuff has become more fascinating and timely now than when I wrote it. I mean, obviously I wrote this a year and a half ago, something like that, maybe two years ago. Also things are getting better for Asians in cinema, I think too, even as things are right now pretty rocky nationally in, in the actual world that we're living in. That brings up a question that was going to come after we finished talking about the book, which is that in the past few years, it's obviously in the past year, long-form television has joined films as a very serious art form, as if these 10-hour films, maybe they need to be considered that way. And in that context, we're seeing a lot of African-American, we're seeing a lot of Asian of all different types, where the word Asian-American has to expand to be Indian American, Thai American, whatever. So something is changing, it seems. Yeah. And it's almost as if the entire industry as a whole is shifting. Is that right? I don't know. Something's changing. And something's changing. I mean, talking about uh, just to, to, about these, these movies that are these, you know, 10 hour movies. I mean, some of them are 10 hour movies and some of them aren't. Some of them aren't. For example, the first season of The Sopranos is a 10-hour movie or 12 or 13-hour movie, whatever it is. But the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, they're not really because they're kind of, they're just like episodic shows. They progress, but they do the thing that TV shows do. They perpetuate themselves by keeping the core situation the same, you know? Like the first two years of Homeland was absolutely brilliant because it kept on blowing up to whatever the situation was. But then the, then the third season was horrible. And then I stopped watching, watching uh, the rest of it. But so, yeah, things are changing. And, but also, I think things are, are changing demonstrably and measurably with regard to women. And, they, and they've changed all at once. 
for years, for years, years, I've been hearing that, you know, 1995 is the year of the woman or something. And, you know, never happens. Women star in movies at a rate of about 15 to 20% of the number of movies that come out. 15 to 20%. This was the case for a very long time. Not in the pre-code era, by the way. Pre-code era in 1933, 61% of the movies starred a woman. But when you get to 1960 and on, up until like 2017, it's been really bad for women, 15 to 20%. And that's counting, by the way, the movies like a romantic comedy where two men and women star in it. So they're equally built. But it doesn't count like if a woman plays, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's girlfriend in a movie where he's doing all the action. She's the female lead, but she's not the star. Okay. But suddenly in 2018, it just, just went up to 33%. And I mean, it, it started, the century started like at 16, 17% steadily. Sometimes it get up to 21, that would be considered a good year. But suddenly in 2018, kaboom, 33%. That was a lot. Then in, in 2019, 34%. So it wasn't some kind of weird anomaly. I don't know what 2020 would have been if most of the movies you know, got released that were supposed to be released. So I think it's disproportionate. It was smaller movies and a lot of movies starring women in 2020. But it's even hard. And 2020 is just hard because it's hard to say what's a movie, what's streaming, you know, what would we would have counted. It's hard to say. But it looks, just the eyeballing it, it looks pretty good. And a lot of the big movies were directed by women, which completes that, that circle that has to happen where you have women writers and directors, women, you know, an audience that wants it, and then women to star in it. So that's changing. And I think maybe maybe that's Trump. You know, maybe that's a reaction to Trump. Maybe it's all a reaction to Trump. You know, the, the phenomenon you're talking about is a reaction to Trump, where it's just like like there's a cultural response to a feeling of I'm trying to come up with a neutral word. But I, with Trump, it's very hard. I mean, a feeling of threat, a feeling of uneasiness, a feeling like there's racism in the air or whatever. There's a feeling of sexism in the air. So all of a sudden you see women, or maybe the 2018 movies were movies that are on the books because everybody thought we were going to have a woman being president. You know what I mean? It could be the other way, but I don't think so because of 2019. But the, the, the moment it clicked for me, I think it was in 20, it's hard to, you know, everything 2018, 2019 is like the before times. It's hard to know what year it was now, but there was a movie about people going up in a hot air balloon and it was loosely based on something that actually happened historically. And the real story, this, the movie started Felicity Jones and um, Eddie Redmayne. Okay, so I went home and I read about it. And I read about it. It was actually two guys. It wasn't a man and woman went up there. Yes, and the movie is not a, like a romantic thing that happens in the balloon. So I was thinking, wow, I felt that way too. It's like, I didn't want to watch two guys in a balloon. I wanted to watch a man and a woman in a balloon. And I think maybe 25 years ago, it would have been two guys in the balloon and I wouldn't even have noticed it as anything. But I think we've just sort of like, like reached a moment where we want to see where men finally want to see more women. Now I've always been there, but I'm, I'm a weird guy. I, I, I always have preferred movies with women in them to men. I like romantic comedies. I like all the things that most guys don't like really. But I think now, even in, in the genres that are not romantic, whatever, maybe men are wanting to see women and women are expecting to see women. And suddenly this is happening. And if that's the case, and I think it is the case now it's three years in a row. I think that, that, you know, genie's out of the bottle and, and finally, you know, it's happening. 
So it could be happening with, you know, people, not, not just of, of, you know, both genders or, or both sexes, but of across the, 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 you know, different hyphenated Americans, different races and everything. It, it, it could be expanding. And that's good because I like all gazes. I do like the male gaze, you know, <laughs> but I like all gazes. I want to, I, I want to see, you know, I want to see the world through different eyes all the time. Well, let's get back for a second to dream state. You kind of try to create a notion of California as some kind of, I don't want to say unique place, but a special place in the sense that certain kinds of films will be in LA and certain kinds of films will be in San Francisco and you can't switch the two. Yeah, you can't. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when you talk about California, you're sort of talking about San Francisco and LA. I mean, you know, California is a lot bigger than San Francisco and LA, but those are the two cities that are, you know, very, those are the ones that, that get the movies made in them and about them. And they're really different. San Francisco is the city of the past. It's always 30 years in, you know, 30 years ago, San Francisco was great. Too bad you missed it. It's always like that. In 1936, they made the movie about the 1906 earthquake that was very nostalgic. They made Milk in 2008, about you know 1977 and 1978, and, and apparently this was this goes back to the gold rush days. There's a guy named Kevin Starr who wrote a book, all these books about California, and he says that in that one of his books in the 1880s there was like all this 1850s nostalgia about the gold rush days. <laughs> so, yeah, so apparently this this is a San Francisco personality thing, kind of a feeling of history. L.A. is always about the current moment, and, and as a result, it's a little bit despairing because the current moment of course just ends you know and in fact the current moment almost, almost doesn't exist it's like the, there's a whole lot of past and a whole lot of future and the current moment is like a split second and if you're famous now you achieve anything now it, it's not going to mean anything you watch norma desmond you know in uh, sunset boulevard it's gloria swanson you know playing this faded silent movie star and of course she was a silent movie star and she was huge and they're watching you know, an, an, an example of a Norma Desmond movie. And it's actually, of course, it's a Gloria Swanson movie from 1928 called Queen Kelly from 22 years before this movie was made. The way you're supposed to watch it, you're not supposed to watch it like, oh, wow. Yeah, Norma Desmond was really good. Wow. Yeah, that, look at her. No, you're supposed to think you're dead. She's dead. She's finished. It's 22 years ago. You know, go get yourself buried. That's LA. And then in terms of noir, film noir, if you look at the, the film noir mo- movies that are made, you know, think of noir. I think of noir as a, totally as a California thing. So like a California d- denomination. And then San Francisco and L.A. are like the two varietals. And the varietal that's San Francisco, a lot of bad things happen. But ultimately, the world winds up making sense. Usually they have happy endings or at least nothing horrible. They don't have perverse endings. The way the city you know, works, I mean, you know, you get... You know, James Stewart walking around San Francisco, he's cracking up in New York. He wouldn't even be noticed because everybody's cracking up in New York. But he's in San Francisco and San Francisco is just kind of just observing him have a nervous breakdown. There's a movie called DOA with uh, Evan O'Brien, where he he gets poisoned, doesn't know it, goes to the doctor. Says, I feel a little funny. And the doctor says, yeah, you're going to be dead in about five days tomorrow, actually. And so he runs out and he's running through the streets of Market Street. and He's all sweaty and everything. And he stops. And everything's nice around him. There's a mother and a daughter and a girl playing with a ball. 
that's the idea. It's like, you know, the idea is that San Francisco doesn't care if you live or die, but LA wants to kill you. Yeah, LA wants to kill you. It's like actively malevolent, wants to kill. And I love LA, but LA wants to kill you. And so in the film, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the film noirs in, that is set in LA, they have just constant perversity, just twistedness, twistedness, twistedness. And to me, that's like the true strain. I mean, that's like the champagne from champagne. You know, that's the real deal. LA noir is like the real noir because it's hopeless. You know, it's just, and it's weird. They don't overlap that much. I mean, obviously this would be reasonably interesting if it were a tendency. And I'm not saying you can't find a contradiction to this, but it is like remarkably consistent. It's going to end a certain way if it's if it takes place in a certain city. Would a movie like Chinatown end differently? You think if it was at San Francisco? No, I would say it was just they wouldn't set it in San Francisco, right? Because they know <laughs> they know they're going to end. So yeah, a couple of movies about LA that aren't mentioned in the book: LA Confidential and Roger yeah. Rabbit. Yeah, I don't mention those. Yeah, I just didn't think of it. Roger Rabbit, I probably wouldn't have included, but I probably could have had something to say about LA Confidential. That would fit. Well, the thing about Roger Rabbit is that I put it in a similar category with Chinatown because Chinatown is about water and Roger Rabbit is about transportation and corruption. Oh, wow. I, I don't remember anything about that other than uh, Jessica Rabbit. You know, who, who played no, Jessica Turner? That was Kathleen Turner's voice. Yeah. yeah. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Yeah. But both movies involve corruption. In fact, the story of Roger Rabbit is about how they're going to destroy an ethnic community, the Toons, to put in a freeway and remove the red trolleys from L.A. streets. I didn't remember this at all. This is this is you tell me this is a serious movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I'm not the first person to talk about this like that. I want to get back to the notion of religion and atheism in California. Oh, OK how that's dealt with in both the L.A. movies and the San Francisco films. I'm not sure if they're different in that case. You know, you could think of it as like, you know, the pilgrims came to the East Coast to practice their religion, and then their offspring eventually came to California to lose theirs because a lot of the, you know, the people they, they got out here, they were disconnected from the rules, basically, and they just, you know, did what they wanted and had different kinds of lives. And so this has always been a, a place that it's not by any means intolerant towards organized religion, but it's a place where the, the hold of organized religion was not very, very strict. It's like, you know, like in New York growing up in, in you know, as a child in the 60s or teenager in the 70s, you, you felt religion more present than I think you would in California because of the, the lack of of religious structures, because people tend to want to believe something, California then becomes the place for every kind of crackpot religion there is. And so instead of instead of traditional religion, then you get every different kind of religion. And I think that any kind of crazy religion, and then you get cults and strange things, and you know these find their way into the movies. But I mean, it, it would be hard, for example, to think of like, I mean, I guess it could happen, but Charles Manson and Jim Jones, I mean, they just seem very California to me. That tends not to happen. I think like Charles Manson would have been laughed out of Brooklyn. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think it, it's going to happen. 
form, especially in the 60s. Maybe now, you know, Brooklyn's a little different now. It's kind of yuppie now. These are California things. And I think in a way, it's, it's the downside of the openness that comes from abandoning the structures of, of, uh, of, of tradition. It's just the danger of it because it, it's hard to live without it. And you wind up seeking it and inventing it or getting or having people maybe take advantage of you for wanting it. It's a little like that. I want to, again, switch gears back to what's happening now in terms of film. I was speaking with David Thompson. I like him a lot. He's a great guy. One thing he said is he thinks movie theaters are dead. He said there's going to be some kind of reaction as people pour back to the movies after the pandemic. But he said movie theaters were dying before. And now with our 50, 60 inch screens, they're not televisions anymore. A lot of people have them. You don't have to go to the movies. And when you go to the movies, all you're doing is spending your time telling the people behind you to shut up. Yeah, yeah, I know. That that is the question. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the big cultural question in generally of the next year is going to be whether COVID interrupted a tendency towards virtual living in general, like you're talking about, no theaters or less, fewer theaters. People would talk in 2018, 2019 about how cool it is that you could have friends that you've never met. And then COVID happens and the idea of having friends that you don't get to see becomes horrifying, you know, really terrible. So the question is, does this like, bring about a greater socialization as this, this were the roaring 20s coming off of the pandemic. It definitely is not going to make everybody retreat right away. David is astute enough to know that if there is a retreat, it would come after a resurgence because everybody's going to go rushing to the theaters as soon as they feel safe. But then will they just go back? And they might because other people are very missed, but people may start thinking that other people are a little bit overrated. You know, I, I you know, cause I think about, I would say, Oh, how wonderful it'd be to be in a movie theater throughout. But now, you know, soon I'm going to be going to a movie theater. And if all of a sudden you know, I got people behind me making noise and, and all this, and you start thinking, well, maybe I could stay home and stream it. The other thing is, you know, everybody's 56 inch TVs. The, the, the thing everybody should get is the thing I got. I have a video projector. It cost me about $2,000, but like one that I have right now would cost about $1,000 now. Consider how much a TV costs, right? Then you get a screen for about $1,200. You run the sound through your, your stereo and you it projects Blu-ray and it looks clearer than a movie theater, at least as clear, depending on, on the Blu-ray. And it's the experience of a screen and it really feels like the movies. And when you're not watching it, the screen rolls up as opposed to you have a 60 inch monstrosity in the middle, middle of your living room. So if people start getting those, they really might not want to come out. Well, for comedies, I mean, you know. For comedies, for sure. That same thing you're talking about is what Roger Ebert told me about 20 years ago, and it didn't happen. Instead, we got much bigger screens. And while I agree with you that that would be optimal to be able to do that, most people can't but they can get a big screen for really very little money. For me, at least, it's not that different than going to a preview in the Hobart building, yeah, which is oh, where yeah. you oh. saw all those movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awful. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's good. That's a good point. Yeah, going to a preview. I got to tell you that me watching 
a movie on an eight foot screen that's projected and it's in the dark is better than going to the Hobart building for a screening, for sure. And plus, I don't have to drive 30 minutes and then park right. the car and walk 10 minutes for the, for the privilege. Yeah, who, who needs it? I, you know, I miss art houses. I miss being able to go see Pacific Film Archive or the Roxy, the Castro. But it is my job. You know what I'm saying? So don't go by me because I associate new movies with working. Like I never in my leisure time would watch a new movie, like a new American movie, because that's just like working. Now, when I retire or something like that, it'll be different, I guess. But right now, it's like, no, I see enough of those. You know, I, I want to see some foreign movie or some movie from 50 years ago or both foreign movie from 50 years ago, something like that. I definitely get that because for me, since I've been reviewing theater on KPFA and doing interviews for books, I'm very unlikely to either see a play or or read a book that won't have some influence on whatever else I'm doing makes it very rough. And it's part of the reason why I refuse to review streaming theater because it interrupted my leisure time, which is watching either movies or long form TV. On the other hand, you know, I think about the fact that a couple of friends of mine don't have a screen and they came over to my house to watch Nomadland. And we watched it in my living room and we watched it without taking a break. And it felt a lot like going to a movie. It was right after all three of us had been double vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so it was a return to, uh, to normalcy. It's a different world. I feel like I'm half out of it now, half out of that period. But I found it very difficult. I found the whole isolation thing very difficult mentally. I've been talking to writers and people in theater about how they feel about COVID. And the general response is they're not interested in films about COVID because we've been living it and we don't want to currently relive it. Might be. Do you think that's true? I don't know. If it follows the usual path. Okay. First of all, the Spanish flu is really weird as a precedent to this because Spanish flu happens and there's never a movie about it. Not one, not one. There's not one movie made about this thing. That's weird because 675,000 Americans died at a time when we had less than one third of the population. So that's like 2 million people dead. It's an epic disaster. It also follows the pattern of like a plague. I mean, people would get that thing and then be dead in three days. So it was such a disaster. Nobody talks about it. It's not even a reference. People do talk about World War I as making the occasion for the Roaring Twenties. But I wonder, you know, if maybe, maybe the occasion for it was also the Spanish flu and just nobody talked about it because, and everybody just wanted to go on a tear. Are there any films about it? Zero. That's what's crazy. So, so I don't know what's going to happen now. I think we're a different country now and there will be movies about it. And I think there'll be exposés of, of the... Trump administration, I think there'll be moves maybe about the development of the vaccine. But if we follow maybe the usual pattern, because this was a pretty serious trauma, it might take seven or eight years for the definitive movie to be made. I mean, the, the great Vietnam movies didn't start to get made until six years after, after we were out of there, six, seven years. So, like, you know, you get uh, Deer Hunter, you get uh, Apocalypse Now. 
you get platoon. The, yeah, platoon is a little later, but still, yes, yeah, and then born on the fourth of July around the same time. You know, the World War One ends in 1918, but you don't get all the World War One movies until 1925 at the big parade. And then there's a whole slew of them leading up to All Quiet on the Western Front. So it's possible that either we won't get them. I don't think that's going to happen. We'll get them right away, maybe. But I think what's really going to happen is that we're going to get a whole bunch of them around 2026. And remember who told you. I did an interview with a screenwriter named Paul Rudnick. Yeah, he did Sister Act and several other things. He did a film for HBO. And that sort of ends on a note of COVID. And I asked him about that. And it's something, he talked about something there and talking also about plays like Normal Heart and his own play, Jeffrey. And it ties in with something you talk about in Dream State, which is that the most topical issues, when they're made topical, somehow transcend the topicality they don't date they become permanent isn't that weird yeah i wanted to do a book about the six tendencies of um of movies that last and um one of them surprisingly is 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 that that movies that become classic were very often topical in their time i think the reason for that is that when movies are talking very directly about something that is going on, something that it's like of concern. I think it does a, it does a few things. First of all, I think it really organized the movie around certain ideas, which is it just becomes very clear what belongs in the movie and what doesn't, because we know why we're making it for this purpose. It also makes people less self-conscious about trying to make something for the future. It just becomes kind of like we're just saying, it just caught in the act of saying something real. And then finally, when you say something real and you, you say something that is urgent and for your time, you usually wind up tapping into emotions that are universal that everybody understands. So that Casablanca is about something really topical, but maybe the, the journey that he goes through you know, isn't. The journey that he goes through is is timeless, and you can say that with a lot of different movies. So it is it is a weird tendency. Topicality does it, it's not like a newspaper where you throw it out the next day. It's for some reason the hot off the presses thing works to the advantage of a movie's longevity. I know that in books, the more specific a character is, the more specific a place is. Yeah. On some level, the more universal it becomes. And yeah. the example about that would be something like The Grapes of Wrath, which alternates these general paragraphs with the story of the Joad family. And what we remember is the Joad family. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's true. If you make it really specific, it somehow becomes universal anyway. I suppose that there's maybe just a core of emotion underneath that, that is the connection. But people will, you know, see in Ma Joad their own mother or they'll see their aunt or something. I mean, they'll just see something that is in direct conversation with them. I interviewed Kate McKay about a series of films by um, Eric Romer from the 1990s, his cycle, four season cycle. 
And each one involves very specific characters. And they're kind of, I don't know, frustrating in some ways. Maybe the ones, the rumors you've seen have the same effect, if you remember back. But they're very talky and they're very specific in place and in character. Yet, to me, in watching like six of these films in a row, I watched those four films plus two others, there's a universality that hit me hard, probably harder than most American films. Yeah. Romer, Romer's you know, not somebody you want to start watching at like 11 o'clock at night because you could go into a trance and, and never come back. But if you're awake, if you're wide awake when you start watching him, these are good movies. He has an interest in a certain kind of very talkative, intelligent, young woman. Oh, and always young, usually, you know, like right. 20s. If you try to make an Eric Romer movie, you'll make a bad movie, like guaranteed, because just a bunch of people just talking. Talking, talking, talking. But for some reason, those movies are usually good. I mean, not every single movie he made, but they're usually good. I love Rendezvous in Paris, which is a little bit hard to see. I think you can get it on, on DVD. And that's just like three vignettes about, I mean, at the end of it, you think you saw the same woman three times in a way, even though they are specific. But I mean, they, they're all talking to her. But there's something about it that's real. Maybe the heart of it, maybe the, the thing that unites everything that that becomes worth watching is just a combination of sincerity and passion. You know, if you mean it, if you really mean it, it might enable you to say it better. Of course, a lot of people really mean it and they, have, they just don't have the talent, but the people who do have the talent when they really mean it, they feel passionate about it. That's going to be like their better movies. Since you're so busy watching films, how much long form TV do you actually get a chance to watch? I mean, I've seen a little more uh, in the COVID year than, than I normally would. I saw a few things. I, I did watch the, the chess one, Queen's Gambit, which I thought was good until like the last episode. And then I, I, thought, it was, then I thought it was bad. I usually don't like, I don't really like episodic TV much because I feel like they're deliberately not solving problems in order to keep the story going. I mean, the mission yeah. seems to just keep it going. And so when I find a show like the first two seasons of Homeland that doesn't, that keeps on blowing up the situation, then I really admire it. I've seen The Sopranos. I've seen, I saw Breaking Bad like some years after. I've, I've seen a few, but I, I saw, you know, I saw, I saw the, uh, the Great British Bake Off, Baking Show, the Great British Baking Show. I saw that. I saw all eight seasons of that. That's quite an antidote to, uh, to watching movies. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and it's also, I found it very relaxing. I mean, during the, the beginning of the COVID thing, when we knew that we were in for it, that we were going to be in jail for a year and a half or something, all these comforts were, were very welcome, you know, and whatever the comfort was, in addition to getting drunk, I mean, the comforts of, uh, of, uh, of TV yeah, I, I took them. But, you know, a lot of times I'm just I have to watch movies. And so I try not. I feel like if I rent out my head too much to TV and I'm seeing movies, I've basically just rented out my inner life to other people a little too much. So I try to avoid it, although not as rigorously like in the last year, because, you know, for obvious reasons. During your year of COVID, when you were watching movies like uh, what is it, The Sound of Metal or Nomadland or 
any of the films that have come out that we've more or less had to watch yeah. at home. Was there a difference for you as a critic in how you viewed them? Are you, are you able to kind of put everything aside and see it the same way you might see it in a theater? Oh, no, no, no. Well, I can imagine, I can look, like if I'm reviewing, like I re reviewed Mulan, I watched on this computer. It's the wrong way to watch Mulan. But I, I, I paid attention so I could get a sense of the, the scope of it. So I can, I can do it, but I'd rather watch it on the big screen. And I, I've since figured out how to watch things on my big screen that I get on computer, which helps. Um, oh, by the way, uh, another movie, another TV show I watched, which, which I thought was great. You ever watched the Danish show Borgen? Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. Oh, you're going to like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. What I've noticed, and this is something that may have passed you by, is what we're seeing more and more of are anything, are shows that are not continual. They are miniseries of anywhere from three to seven episodes like Watchmen was one season. It's not coming back. Yeah. And uh, that would be one I would recommend because it's one of the best views on race that I've seen. Okay. Uh, this is something new, which is longer movies. I mean, when people complain about an adaptation of a novel being turned into 90 minutes so much is lost well now they can turn it into six hours yeah that's true eric von strahan would have been very happy to be working in tv yeah yeah that's true really you know think about that greed right they had to cut it was 11 hours he was around now they, they he, he would have just he would have been on hbo and, and it would have been fine look apocalypse now coppola could have made it a three episode or four or five episode tv show yeah. He had the he had the material, and they did that years ago with Godfather. Yeah, yeah, the Godfather, the Godfather saga. I I keep waiting for the Godfather saga to go on go on DVD or Blu-ray. It's not. You can't get it. I mean, that's how that's how I saw the Godfather for the first time, growing up in the like like in the late seventies when I was uh, a teenager. I I saw the saga, and the saga contains forty extra minutes. So I've been wanting to see the Godfather saga for a long time. I'm thinking that maybe they'll release it next year because it's the 50th anniversary. That would but be great. Just, but if I if I ever met Coppola, I mean, that's the first thing I'd say to him is what happened to the saga? I want to see that saga. Did you see the revised version of Godfather 3? I started watching it and I got distracted and then I never went back to it. Did, did you? I didn't feel like it was that different except for the opening. Was it? I didn't get a chance to see it because it hasn't actually come on one of my streaming services yet. But I did get to see the revised Cotton Club, which I like quite a bit. And that was very different. Oh, really? OK. Yeah, I didn't notice much of a difference, but but maybe I maybe I need to. I've seen The Godfather a lot. And then, you you know, if you see The Godfather, you like it, you wind up watching Godfather 2. And then if you enjoy Godfather 2, you just say, Oh, well, maybe I'll watch it again. The last time I watched Godfather 3, it, it got worse. I gave I gave Godfather 3 a little man jumping out of the chair when it came out. I loved it. Yeah, and and now I don't. I just don't. I don't really feel like that guy is Michael Corleone is the problem. I think he's just a totally different guy. And uh, I don't see how that guy from, you know, at the end of Godfather 2 somehow becomes 
you know, likable Al Pacino at the beginning of Godfather 3. I, I just don't buy it. Another question I asked David Thompson, David Thompson, I talked about this quite extensively, which has two, two parts. One is the thought of directors revising their own work, yeah. how legitimate that is. And the other thing is something you just talked about, which is the nature of our reappraisals of things we loved versus things we hated. How do you well, put okay. those two pieces together? Well, two, two different things. People going back and revising their old work is dangerous because there's no such thing as a perfect work of art. There's only a persuasive work of art. You know, there's a work of art that makes you, uh, that persuades you to not notice what's wrong with it because everything in it is so charming that, that you don't care. But everything has something wrong with it because it's a creation for human beings. And so if a filmmaker goes and starts correcting things that are maybe even legitimately wrong, they can destroy the alchemy of what made it right in the first place. And you don't want, you know, you don't want to be like, you know, 75 year old Wordsworth going back and revising the poems that he wrote when he was a 30 year old genius and screwing them all up years later. Cause that that's, there's a danger of that. As far as reappraisal is concerned. I mean, aside from just the individual reappraising things, I think there isn't enough reappraisal of, of like the basic canon of movies. You know, what happened with, with movies is that you had the, the, the David Thompson generation, the, that generation of critics, Richard Corliss, Molly Haskell, uh, Andrew Saras, these great critics. I, I liked them and I, three of them I knew, I knew uh, or know. But what happened is then people used to buy film books. So there were a lot of film books published in the 60s and the 70s. And the reason why the film books were published in the 60s and the 70s is because people wanted to like re, kind of re-experience the movie. That they, and they look at the stills. You, know, you look at the stills. Oh, wow. If I buy this book, I get these pictures from this movie. Well, 1980, all of a sudden, the, the VHS player becomes ubiquitous and people stop buying film books and they start buying VHS tapes because you don't need, you don't need the middleman of the book. Well, right. what this does that's bad is that it basically freezes the canon. So the basic repertory of movies is set by that generation of, of you know, Corliss and Thompson, all these, all these people who are now, these are people who are like around 80 now, that generation. And it's frozen. What, what, I, like what I had to go through to get my first book, Complicated Women, done. And you would think, you know, I write for a major newspaper. Then we had a circulation of like 650,000. I was on TV. I was even on TV, right? And I almost couldn't get arrested. Finally, fi oh, oh yeah, and then Turner Classic Movies promised that they'd do a documentary of it, and it still took me another two years. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is how connected you had to be. Whereas like in 1965, you could be 28 and write a book, and then boom, you get published. So as a result, the, the, the basic repertory hasn't been refined, and nobody's reappraising these movies. And I think a lot of the movies that the generation of like David Thompson would absolutely love, I think they're not that good. Well, name a couple. Like Philadelphia Story, His Girl Friday. You know, these, these are movies that, that are the kind of movies that you love if you were growing up like in the 50s or something and you saw them. But I don't think, I don't think they hold up. I think that the His Girl Friday was put out uh, on, on, um, on a DVD with the, uh, the original front page from like 1931, which right. His Girl Friday was supposed to be like, oh, it's a genius recreation. It's, it's, no, it's not as good. I was like, Cary Grant is a newspaper editor? 
I mean, have you ever seen a newspaper editor? <laughs> Grant, you know, admittedly, this is something I know about. So, you know, when you actually know about something, it kind of ruins movies about that subject for you. But there's a lot of these movies, a lot, and also too, there's a lot of movies that I'm finding that we thought they lasted 50 years. They're safely in, they're safely classics. And now at 70, they're not as good. That's weird. Like uh, Preston Sturgis's movies, not Sullivan's Travels, but if you watch like Palm Beach Story, that movie was hysterical in 1995. I showed it for a class of students in like 2018, crickets, not a single laugh. And by the way, the students weren't kids. They were people who were my age, a lot of them older, people who were retired. So these are people who had seen the movie, thought it was funny when they saw it back in 1970 and saw it again. It just seems stupid. So I think that we don't have enough reappraising of what's a great movie. And also the discoveries, you know, there's a lot of movies, a lot of silent movies to be discovered, a lot of movies to be discovered as classics. I've discovered movies that I think are classics. I can write about them in my little book that, you know, sell 5,000 copies, but I can't, you know, it won't be a whole wave, a whole generation of people discovering it and, and, and solidifying it. So I, I wish there were more film books. And, um, and I, I think it's bad that it was just artificially frozen, albeit for a great reason that we all got to see the movies. By the way, their movies, not, not Thompson, who's great, but like the lesser film writers at that time, their books are full of errors about movies because they, they num- number one, didn't remember the movie right. But they didn't have to worry that they didn't because they knew nobody would ever get to see the movie anyway. They didn't know that VHS was going to happen. So a lot of those movies you could just a lot of those books you could just throw in the garbage to begin with. You know, I keep thinking about uh, an interview I did, and I don't remember the guy's name, but he was the longtime cartoon editor for the New Yorker, and we were talking about the nature of humor, and yeah. he said, if you think about it, right, the Marx Brothers, we remember kind of laughing and we watch it and we laugh with the memory but if you watch that movie as a younger person maybe it's not funny maybe the era has passed us by i remember showing annie hall to a millennial i thought it was very funny when i saw it he didn't laugh once how'd you show it to him though just you and him watching it yeah and did you tell him it was funny well i mean yeah, yeah you, you can't tell him it's funny. Yeah, I mean, look, I, this happens all the time. I, I, uh, I very often I, I, I watch movies. I'll watch movie movies at a screening, you know, with other people. We'll be laughing, and I'll say, "Oh wow, this is hilarious!" And then I'll, I'll tell my wife, "We got to watch this movie," and we watch it. It's just me and her watching a movie. And she says, what's so funny about this movie? This movie's not funny. So I don't think it's just that, you know, that it's millennial or 40 years have passed since that movie. I think it's, you know, just two people sitting around instead of in a theater. When I watched Danny Hall, I saw it in the theater. And then it imprinted itself as funny on me. You know, I mean, now I watch it. Well, I haven't watched it in a while. But if I watched it again, I'd be watching it, recreating that first experience. I know where all the laughs are. Sure. Right. But if I'm watching it cold, I don't even know where the laughs on. I'm watching it by myself. So it's not that funny. I mean, it may have lost a little funny, I admit, but I think it's still a pretty funny movie. Well, what about the Marx Brothers? Do you think um, they, they are funny to a younger generation? I don't know. I, I know that it's a big generation with a lot of people in it. And in my own generation, most people weren't interested in the Marx Brothers either. Right. So. Right. 
but I watched the Marx Brothers and I liked them. So, you know, you, you might be looking for a needle in the haystack when you're looking for somebody of this generation who likes the Marx Brothers. The real question is not if you like grab some random millennial or, or Generation Z, threw him into the chair and told him, this is funny. You will laugh, <laughs> right? Right. But you, there will be people who are that age who will see that and laugh because I don't think they're dead because I think that the Marx Brothers are, they're anarchic enough that they're, they're not, you know, they date a little bit, but they don't date that much, but because they're just so, they're so out of left field and crazy. Maybe, you know, a Bob Hope movie from 1943 might date worse than that. Cause that that's full of all the, the nonsense and assumptions about what people, or, or if you watch like a Doris Day, James Garner comedy, right? Full of so many cultural myths and lies and you know, at the grounding of that comedy that people won't enjoy it because it's it's it, people will recognize it as a lie. There's nothing in the Marx Brothers that's a lie. I yeah, I think millennial can like it or somebody younger. Yeah, well, his point was that humor on some level shifts with generations. So when I did mention the Marx Brothers, his response was maybe, maybe not. We can't guarantee that what one generation finds funny, another won't. Now, for instance, I was just looking at the Q&A and someone wrote, I love Philadelphia's story. I love the Marx Brothers. I love His Girl Friday. Can I explain what is the Philadelphia story that I find repellent? Sure. Okay. The thing about the Philadelphia story is that the, the movie is remembered as this delightful comedy with Catherine Hepburn in it, but the movie is is a is is just like a two-hour apology of Catherine Hepburn for being Catherine Hepburn. And everybody is just telling her off the whole time. And I mean, it takes a lot to feel sorry for Catherine Hepburn. I mean, she's not like that much of a pitiful figure. And she is kind of a relentless sort of person. I and mean, if she was in your own life, I mean, she would be a little, she'd be a little rough going in a way. But She's mad at her father. You cheated on my mother. And he says, well, the reason why I cheated on your mother was because I didn't have the unconditional affection of a loving daughter. In other words, it's her fault. It's her fault that he cheated on the mother. That's insane. Then she's talking to Cary Grant. Oh, you're an alcoholic. You, you're a drunk. Yes, I was an alcoholic because you didn't give it. And it's like, oh, I was an alcoholic. So this guy's a drunk because of her. The other guy's cheating on his on his wife because of her. I mean, it's amazing they didn't bring out somebody who robbed a bank because of her. I mean, the whole thing is about how horrible she is and also all these guys blaming her. So it's like, it's like the most, I mean, I don't object to it on political grounds because I think that's a dumb way to approach the art of another century, really. But I do object to it on the grounds of like being real. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I mean, there's a certain kind of politics informing that belief that the movie is putting forth. My concern isn't the politics. My concern is the nonsense. You know what I mean? And it's 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 so it's 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 remembered as a feminist movie. It is clearly not right. But it's also hard to enjoy because it's absolutely ridiculous. Everybody's. And then you have and then, of course, you, then you they card out James Stewart to tell her how great she is. But he he's she doesn't wind up with him because. You know, he's he doesn't even know her either. I know it's like and then she has to basically learn to to make men not feel insecure. And that's the happy ending. So I don't really like it. I, I don't like that kind of story. 
Isabel Friday, I just don't like because I think that the newspaper stuff is just completely stupid, and the 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 the, the original play was you know dead on. So that's my thing with that. Someone yeah. mentioned it's a mad, 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 mad world, and their daughter saw it and thought it was hysterically funny. Oh, great! Which I found interesting because when I saw it as a kid, thought I was more interested in looking at who was showing up in the film than yeah, actually yeah, laughing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's. that's <laughs> yeah, I saw it on TV uh, in probably around 1970, but that was the fun of it. Is that everybody was uh, showing uh, up? In the movie. Well, I want to end up with an observation I made that kind of talks about what you just talked about, and it involves the opening of Dream State, which is how we actually look at films. Now, in my case, a TV show like Bewitched from the 1960s, if you think about it, everybody in the show is an alcoholic. And (laughs) anybody, right, anybody who sees a magic thing happen they're told that they've seen it because they were drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single character has an alcohol problem. <laughs> but we never think about that. No, not and, in, the, in the 70s, you didn't think about it. No, definitely not. Darren is like, he, I mean, he walks through the door and gets handed a, a big martini every night. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Think about it. Kiki Poo Joy Juice. And then we've got in Dreamscape, in Dream State at the beginning, when you talk about Wizard of Oz, and it's sort of sit in the back of my mind since I was a kid, but when Dorothy gets back from Oz, Toto is still going to be killed. Yes. And no one talks about it. Nobody, no, it's beyond that. Nobody even remembers it. Nobody remembers it. She's, oh, I'm home, I'm home, and everything's wonderful, and you were there, and you were there, and I'm never going to leave. And it's like, they're going to kill your dog. Wake up, lady. They're coming in. They're going to kill your dog probably tomorrow. Get out of there. So, yeah, it's it's strange. It's weird. I You know, I saw that movie 10 times before. I said, what? Because you know, the beginning of the movie is she's worried about the dog. She leaves home because of the dog. She wakes up and the witch is dead, but Miss Gulch is still alive. It's really strange. How did they do that sleight of hand? I really literally saw that movie 10 times. I was like 42 when I saw that movie finally and thought, they're going to kill the dog. Yeah, I think I was like 48. Not only are they going to kill the dog, but Kansas, she doesn't want to be there. No. That's why she ran away. That's why it's in <laughs> black and white and Oz is in colors to let you know that she shouldn't be there. Yeah, that, that movie is very unconscious. I mean, it's it's not... It doesn't mean to say what it says, but it's sure it's saying, get the hell out of there. You know, it's saying Oz, Oz is hard. Oz is Oz is horrible, but it's better than Kansas. I mean, I got nothing against the real Kansas. I'm talking about the Kansas in the movie and her parent. What's with and what's with what's with Auntie M? How come Auntie M is how come they're so much older? I mean, they're so much older than she's like supposed to be like a 10 year old child. So how come they're like her grandparents or her great grandparents age? Is everybody in her family dead? Is there like a really, really bad death rate going on in that family? Something is weird. It's it's very unsavory. We just don't know what it is. Auntie M just gives over the dog to Miss Gulch. They don't do anything. They're powerless. You mentioned that. Nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to an interview with Mick LaSalle, whose latest book is Dream State, California in the Movies. The complete Zoom interview can be found by going to the webpage for this podcast at kpfa.org. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.